Content warning. The Silence Voices Stories of MST podcast discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics related to military sexual trauma. We want to provide a safe space for survivors and those seeking to understand these issues better. Please be advised that the content may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is in need of support, please consider seeking guidance from a mental health professional or a trusted resource. Welcome to Silence Voices, Stories of MST, hosted by Rachel Smith. This podcast is dedicated to giving a voice to military sexual trauma survivors. Each week, we'll bring you powerful stories of courage, resilience, and healing. Join us on this journey to create awareness, spark dialogue, and drive change within the military community. It's time to break the silence and amplify the voices of those who have been silenced for far too long. Listen in and become a part of a movement that's shaping the future. Voices, Stories of MST. Hello and welcome. I'm Rachelle Smith, host of Silence Voices, Stories of MST. Thank you for joining me today. The interview today is with a young woman named Taylor. She and I were friends around the time I graduated high school, and I had no idea that she had experienced MST. And she also offers a very unique perspective because she was not a service member. She was the dependent of a service member. So she gives unique insight into how MST can go completely unreported, and it's a very interesting reason why. In this episode, you'll really understand how drastically this event can change someone's life. She mentioned that it's been 15 or 16 years since this happened to her, and she's still relearning how to trust herself. It's a very frank conversation about how this event has impacted her marriage, what raising her kids is like, and just her opinion on the military, having been a dependent, and once considering joining even after this happened. Although Taylor has come a long way in healing, you can hear in her voice that Some days are definitely more difficult than others. And if you'd like to drop a line of support to Taylor, hang in there till the end of the episode and I'll tell you how. Welcome and thank you so much for for volunteering to participate. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for letting me know about it. It's important for people to know about. So let's talk about your life when you were at Ramstein. Was one of your parents stationed there? My father was Mm -hmm. stationed there. It was actually our second time there. From about six months till seven years old and then back to the States and then came over as a teenager. And that was a completely different experience. (laughs) What did you love or hate about going back? What was the experience like? Like, I loved going back. Like, I love Mm -hmm. the history of the place. I love that you can, I guess, travel to everywhere because everything is so close for the most part I mean it was like a four-hour drive I think and you were in Normandy France from where we were so it was I miss the traveling I miss the history I hear you yeah I I, I do miss the hopping on the buses you know and and just (laughs) sign up for this bus tour (laughs) you go to sleep and when you wake up we're going shopping It was great. I feel like that is what every 80-year-old's life should be like. Be like, let's get on the bus. We're going to go look at pottery. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have a favorite country that you went to visit in that time? Probably France. Because it was, there's so much to do. And every little town was just like, so different. (laughs) And it was, it was really fun. Especially getting to go and see all the different, um, I guess like World War II museums and all the fun stuff that they had out there so that was actually got to sit on Omaha Beach which my grandfather stormed in World War II so that was a pretty weird like feeling but (laughs) 
How surreal. Oh, yeah, it was pretty wild. But I mean, it was nice to be able to sit there and do that. So it was it was pretty weird. I definitely feel like that's an opportunity not many people have had. Wow. No, and it was definitely one I did not want to pass up. So it's, you know, we were right there anyways. And I was like, no, we got to go to Hobby. We have to go. (laughs) Very admin. You're absolutely right. The Just the amount of history and, and culture over there is almost overwhelming, I'd say. <laughs> it, it can be, but, like, I love the fact, too, that it's, like, they can have all these fests and all these, you know, like, drunk people around each other, and there's no fighting. There is no mm-hmm. anything. Like, there might be, you know, people get a little too tipsy and have to be escorted out, but it's it's chill. I would definitely say I miss that about Germany like going out in the states when I did finally turn 21 there was always a fight there was always worrying about getting hurt in some way whereas Germany like if you tripped like six people would drunkenly try to help you up (laughs) yeah (laughs) are you okay did you Mm -hmm. get your knee here's beer (laughs) I was like exactly and if one of those people that was trying to help you up fell, like more people rushed over to you. <laughs> it's so wild. Like, it's so crazy to me. Because I think people have all these misconceptions about German people as a whole. And it just, I miss it. Like, honestly, I prefer Germany to the to the States. But maybe that's just me. Oh. <laughs> like, that could be just me. <laughs> Living there and then coming back here was... Like when when I lived there, we we were there five years straight. Never went back to the states, or at least while I was in in high school. I think I went back to get my driver's license or something like that. But yeah, most of us did. <laughs> oh, God, that whole process. But going back to Texas from Germany, like talk about culture shock. Oh my God! Because ah, we came straight to from it, and my first like real interaction with somebody from here we're laughing at my lack of culture it's strange because you have so much though (laughs) and I still was unprepared for that so when I think we met it was I know I had just started working at the BX there when you're freshly graduated from high school and you go work at the BX there's just tons and tons of young enlisted members that are just about the same age as you it was a a kind of a strange way to exist there where I I was a dependent and still the same age as like a lot of these people that were interacting with me and I was hanging out with and meeting it and I think even we went to the enlisted club together at Mm -hmm. one point we interacted with enlisted members a whole bunch I, I don't think I knew any officers but yeah it's, it was just like woven into our lives that the military yeah. part of it. I feel like if you're stationed in the U.S., there's all these other different communities. How long were you in Germany before this incident happened to you? I think we got there, I want to say like 05 or 06. Mm-hmm. It had to be 05 or 06 because we left. It was 06. So, yeah, it had to have happened in between, I would think, 07 and 08, which is because 08 is when I met my husband. (laughs) One year window there. If you want to take us through that to your Um, I went to the um, the NCO club because, you know, they did the the super fun Corona nights. That was on Tuesdays, right? Yeah, it was a Tuesday days is where the story takes place <laughs> 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 Tuesday night when you know should have been working like I just went out um with some drinks for friends and there was a guy out there that was flirting with one of my friend's sisters and stuff and he was a little abrasive about it and I was like um hey like just maybe we should tone it down a little bit like, to the point that at one point, I remember him throwing a glass, like, across the patio. Like, it was insane. And I'm like, okay, so I'm just going to, you know, go over here. 
Yeah. And um, we'll call him, we'll call him Chad. Calmed down a little bit and brought me a drink. And he was like, hey, sorry you had to witness this. You know, sorry that happened kind of thing. And I was like, hey. But like all the while still making, you know, like this whole thing with my friends. And so by the end of the night, I guess they were officially dating. Oh. And yeah, um, I had had too much to drink, as sometimes happens. But I also think there was the possibility that something was slipped into my drink. But, you know, nobody ever wants to test for that. Right. And um, so, yeah, I was feeling a little woozy. Couldn't find who I came with. And stupid me trusted him to, you know, like, hey, just, you know, come chill at my dorm. We'll figure it out. Blah, 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 blah. Even though I had seen the, you know, aggressive sides of him. But at that, like, I had nowhere to go. I didn't have my purse. It was with my friend. Couldn't find my friend because, you know, he had taken off to go do his own thing. So it was, um, it was an interesting night of him basically, like, I had nowhere else to go. So I went with him and hung out with him at his room. And then I honestly can only remember bits and pieces, which again, leads me to believe there was more than just alcohol. But from what I can remember, like, I know he brought a friend into the room after I was asleep on his couch. Cause you know, after all that, when your memory starts coming back to you, you remember certain things and it was um kind of hard to uh come to terms with the fact that he brought someone in the room and I remember that person leaving pretty quickly but not before having realizing like hey this situation is not kosher I'm a I'm a go but still left me in the room with that man it's just predatory like even just going out and drinking and having people like here let me buy you you know a drink like, the second you would walk into the bar sometimes, like, oh, hey, here's a drink. I don't know you. <laughs> like, I remember that. I, like, I saw you, like, one time a month ago. Here's a drink. I mean, like I said, I have this false sense of, I guess, like, safety because he was, you know, by the end of the night dating one of my friends. And I'm like, mm-hmm. cool, I don't have to worry about anything. But, I mean, really all I can remember are, like, bits and pieces of, like, me saying no me saying stop, really being too weak to fight anything off. And then I wasn't 100% sure like that actually anything happened or if it was like one of those, like, you know, I fell asleep in a strange place, had a nightmare that maybe was just a little too realistic. But yeah, like the dude threw cash at me and told me to get a cab and go home. And I was like, okay, so go home. And I'm like, still kind of trying to figure out like what exactly happened and get home and I'm changing. And I realized I have no underwear, like none. And I definitely did when I got, you know, when I left, I was still in high school when it happened. So I took a couple, you know, like days off, went back to school and, um, the whole rumor was like, I was, it was my fault. I came on to him. I ruined her relationship. I trusted a couple people and talked to them about, you know, like how I wanted to go forward and press charges and stuff. And that's when I found out he was an MP. So if I did anything, it was going to come across his desk first. How terrifying was that? Pretty terrifying. Like, to the point where I wasn't sure if I wanted to do anything. Because, oh, well, if he's an MP, it's going to cross his desk before mm-hmm. it gets to whoever. And I was like, oh, cool. That's, that's fun. And did you speak to your parents about it at all? Like we had said, I think like Corona night was like Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't remember which one exactly, but it was 
that next day, like my mom knew something was wrong. I basically was just lounging around on the couch, didn't shower for a couple of days. Like I just, I vegetated. I didn't want to, to do anything or talk about it. And finally, like she came and sat down next to me and started rubbing my back and asked me like, what happened? Because this is not, you know, how I typically act. And so I told her and we went in and, you know, I did at this point, like I hadn't showered, but a rape kit would have been not worth it basically is what I was told after I went in because I basically just went in for the swab and didn't realize I had anything going on. Well, it turns out that Wonderful gave me my very first STD ever. So I caught chlamydia from it, went and told the friend. And instead of the friend getting checked, she decided to tell the entire school that I was the one that gave it to him. And all this, I was like, I don't understand because like, I literally had just had my yearly pap before that and everything came back normal so I was like how did I get like so it was wild they uh she spread rumors all over the school to just kind of discredit me and I mean like I was 19 and in Germany like was I a little wild sometimes yes I think everybody was but that doesn't negate the fact that what happened to me happened just a lot of mental gymnastics going on with your mm-hmm. quote-unquote friend. We very quickly were not friends anymore. When you were interacting with the, the medical staff for the, the testing, did they want to follow up with that at all? <laughs> no. She called me and told me I had STD. And that I needed to let any of my partners know. And I was like, well, there was only one partner. And I had only mentioned him, not the the friend, you know, had told her what had happened. And she was like, oh, okay, I'm going to need you to go next door to report your, um, what did she say? To basically report my, my STD so they could have it on record. Um, I can't remember. Basically, she was like, okay, cool. You're a statistic now and we need to record this. So you need to go over. I can't remember the name of the building. But she was like, so you need to go report it. Basically, he had already told me like the rape kit would have been, wouldn't have been able to do it. But he also used condom because I guess smart on, you know, his end. But obviously not for all of it. I got an STD, but very dismissive. Didn't give me any resources at all of anybody that I could reach out to, didn't ask if I wanted to make a report, didn't, and her tone with me was just like very, almost I'm disappointed in you. My mom was livid at this interaction. And so it was, it was a mess. Like she just, she didn't care. Yeah, it was, it was, I had no support other than from my family and a couple friends. Like I actually ended up dropping out and getting my GED and not even finishing high school because of this because like the rumors got so bad like it just it wasn't worth it I would go to school and hear things about me that I know for a fact I never did or it never it was wild and then his friends anytime I went out like after like I went to corona night a couple other times after that did not drink was there, you know, to kind of just watch mutual friends to see patterns, if you know, if that makes sense, to try and kind of save them from the same thing happening. But I mean, I later found out that they actually stopped doing it for a while because of the amount of sexual assaults that were coming from those nights. So, but yeah, then they picked them back up because money. <sighs> Boy. <clears throat> Did the staff at at school try to intervene at all? No. No, because I was already having um, a problem with one of the teachers, too. I made the mistake of correcting a teacher. Um, Don't do that at dog schools. Don't do it. Um, So I was suddenly failing a class, and it was just, they more so used me failing the class to be like, oh, well, you know, even though she's getting all these papers with these and these back and all of this, 
you know, we're going to go ahead and retain her. And we want you to pay for school, even though we know that like, or for summer school, even though we know the teacher is the issue here, we want to. And I mean, that on top of what was already going on and on top of what the school was already aware of, like, I was just like, no, I'm, I'm already 18. I can pull myself out of the school. <laughs> like I talked to my dad and he came up and he was like, well, nothing's being done to help her. Nothing's being done to protect her. So I went and got my GED and I didn't have to deal with anybody that I didn't want to have to deal with anymore. So that was still had people messaging me because of course rumors did not stop. You know what? Like just let her, let her go because she's gonna learn. Like she's, she's gonna learn. And then I haven't been able to find any information myself and none was sent to me, but I was told that that person was eventually arrested for attempting it on somebody else. But like I said, without having all of the information that I would need to look it up, I haven't been able to find it. So I don't know how true that is, but man, I hope it's true. I really hope it's true. (laughs) So the guy is just a complete predator. Yeah. I wasn't the first and I wasn't the last. Like, I wish I knew how to, I guess, how to look it up and confirm it, but I don't, I don't know. But I mean, even if that was just a little white lie to make me feel safer, like it worked (laughs) because I didn't have to, you know, worry about running into him. Mm -hmm. uh, Was there ever any point that his leadership was involved or like any sort of investigation happened? Nope. None. None. Like, I had an appointment. Um, I was trying to make an appointment to talk to somebody. Like, called, you know, the the MP office trying to figure out, like, who I needed to go through, what had to happen. And he answered the phone. I never went forward with it because I knew it would be, he'd be right there. He'd be in their ear. He'd be, so it was until it became a known issue that he was the issue it just nobody cared so this person was both in a position of power and a predator yeah what was it like just trying to pull yourself together after the rumor mill and getting your GED and I mean you were still in Germany for quite some time after that yeah I was there for I think like four and a half more years after that so it was it was rough um I kept very little friends through that the girl's brother I was fairly good friends with and hung out with all the time I stopped hearing from him because like I would ask him you know hey like what's going on is she safe has she said anything because she's still dating and for all of this but it wasn't until they broke up because of the I guess supposed arrest or whatever happened that she finally went and got you know her pap and got checked and everything and oh you know she had the STD too so maybe I wasn't a liar but I mean, that took two years, but it just, you know, she tried coming around after that. And I was like, good, like, wish you the best, but I just, I can't. But I mean, like, I lost my friendship with him too, because he was like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. So somebody I trusted and hung out with all the time of, you know, well, he's dating my sister, so I don't want to talk about it anymore. While constantly seeing this dude on my, my news feed, and it was just... Social media is the worst. You're watching this person be put up on a pedestal and treated like a normal person, but you know what they're capable of. Around that time, people were just transitioning from MySpace to Facebook. The bases would have their little pages. Like it wasn't anything official at that point, but they put like promotion ceremonies up there and awards and just having that thrown in your face after 
I'm so sorry. It's rough. What was your dad's reaction as he was the, the military member? I didn't tell my dad for a couple years just because the kind of person my dad was at the time um I was worried maybe I would be blamed like you know the whole hey you know better I warned you about this stuff and it just it wasn't something I wanted to get into so it was you know like my mom really helped me through it I was still going through some stuff when I met and he was super patient super great about it but it's just I didn't have much of a support system other than just a couple people that stuck around so it was it was very hard to navigate and it's I didn't have I'll say getting mental health help was a lot easier stateside years after the whole situation happened so I mean I started therapy about six years ago and it's something I'm still working through like the fact that this happened like we had said 15 16 years ago at this point like I'm still working through this in in therapy it's been 16 Mm -hmm. years it's something that I'm always gonna have like you can work Mm -hmm. through the trauma but the trauma doesn't go away like it's it's a daily fight yeah yeah that's what a lot of people say is they're just at sometimes they're taking a day second by second yeah because of the the anxiety the not knowing if you're going to be triggered by something completely innocuous yeah Um, it's oh yeah one of my big triggers is balloons popping I don't go to kids birthdays I, I don't like going to Chuck E. Cheese or just any occasion where balloons are around. I'm a nervous wreck. And that somehow turned into toasters also. <laughs> what was another one? It was, uh, you know, when you're, you're making the Pillsbury biscuits and you have oh, to pull the paper off. Yeah. yeah. And it, the pop, I legit for years I would sweat through shirts and like maybe go over to neighbors' houses and ask if they could do it for me. Or I would pull the paper off and then just put it in the refrigerator and close the door and, and wait for it to pop itself. Yeah. But it's having that sort of trauma. It, it's these little things that don't matter at all, but they set you off. Um, was there ever a point where the, the hypervigilance or nightmares or anything like that became just untenable where you couldn't function? Probably like the first month or so after it happened, like anytime someone would, I guess, come at me in any form of aggressive manner, like even if it was just, you know, talking face to face. And it's people I've had arguments with before that I know would never lay a hand on me, that would never you know, do anything like that. But it's just that first sign of aggression, I'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, mm, mm, no. Because your your trust is broken. You're, mm-hmm. you're what, um, it's called your adrenals are pumping out all the adrenaline yeah. and you're just, you're in fight or flight mode. Yeah, you really are. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, one time one of my friends came up and like touched the back of my neck and I immediately just elbow went back. Cause like you said, you stay in fight or flight after. So it's, I didn't like having people behind me for the longest thing time. Like if you were not in my, you know, side of vision or line of vision, I was like, mm. and it was something I had to say all the time. Like, don't come up behind me and touch me because you might get hurt <laughs> like it's it's not funny but it's like I, I can definitely relate I had a, a very good friend uh, when I was I think it was after I had gotten out of the air force but I was still up in the Destin Fort Walton Beach area and my good friend known him forever loved him to death 
he ran up behind me and squeezed him and I punched him straight in the nose. Uh, and he was on a date. He was just excited to see me. Aww. Yeah. And I, I, I felt so terrible. Like we were just at a bar and then I, I left. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And I hit him like square, right? Like there was no missing it, you know? And I, I don't think he got a nosebleed, but there was like drainage. Like it was just this complete, it was like my, my body reacted before my brain had a thought. Your brain, yeah. Mm-hmm. Therapy wise, what do you think is, is working? As far as like helping the anxiety and everything. Mm-hmm. Finding my therapist has definitely um, helped a lot. Just trying to process it. Like I now know like it's not my fault because I mean, I blamed myself for a while because like, why the hell would I go with this person? But I literally had nowhere else to go. Was I supposed to sit outside of a rating bar waiting for my friend to come back? Like, what was I? And yeah, like it was, I had to work through that. Like thinking it was my fault dealing with kind of just with how everybody treated me through it all mm-hmm. but therapy has definitely worked and I still do have like panic attacks and stuff like that that's a fun one to work through they gave me clonopin for my acute anxiety which I don't need as often but it's it's wild to go from not needing you know these things to suddenly needing these things and then having to adjust to that and it's it makes me angry like I'm frustrated because I wasn't this person before and it's essentially I'm having to learn who I am again and what I'm capable of dealing with on a day-to-day basis kind of thing because it's not something you had to consider at all at any other point in your life yep now you're living with side quests and terms and conditions and yeah were there any particular coping skills that you've learned in therapy that might have helped sorry my cat decided to come up and be weird <laughs> was your cat a coping skill he's my emotional support animal because anytime my Aww. anxiety is up he jumps up and he'll be here mm-hmm. say hi he's been helpful um Anytime, like, my anxiety is real bad, he'll come and he'll actually sit on my chest. (laughs) There was something she taught me, too. It's the stop sign technique, which is basically, you like, you know, you just stop your intrusive thoughts. You redirect. And so I'll have to think about a stop sign. And she wants me to think of every single detail, like, about the stop sign. Like, is it in dirt, surrounded by grass? Is it, you know, in cement? And I looked at her. When she said that, she's like, what? I was like, who the hell puts these in cement? Like, I don't think I've ever seen them in a sidewalk. Like, I think it's always grass. And she goes, you'd be surprised. (laughs) So after that, now I have to think about that. So every time I look at a stop sign, I'm like, is that in cement? (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) It's a grounding technique, though. It's very useful. useful. Are you also a ruminator where the, the thoughts just keep swirling yep. and swirling for maybe hours at a time yeah it's fun because you know like you just be sitting there enjoying your day and then it's like something just snaps and then the next thing you know you're spiraling for the next 45 minutes and I'm like where is that stop sign <laughs> you have to think of this stop sign <laughs> when you did get back to the states and just kind of start life over what was that like for you it was nice to start over it was nice to get mm-hmm out of there I mean I had already stopped talking to a lot of the people by the time we left um because I had gotten married I had had my daughter a lot of the friends I had by the time I left were like friends I had made through work so I had already for the most part disconnected myself from most of the people I talked to um in high school other than like you and a couple other people so but it was it was nice to get away from it but I mean, I'm definitely seeing it's not any better in the in the states. Just I won't go to any functions like as anything like that. I won't drink at them. I won't like I don't want to possibly put myself in a situation like that because a couple of his airmen have have hit on me in different situations. Knowing I'm married to him, 
So I'm like, mm, no. But it's part of the culture. It it's. Mm-hmm. I'm learning there are are um, more swingers and you know open relationships and stuff like that now these days. But some, I mean, you obviously have the people that don't follow the rules of whatever those relationships are. Like I don't know because I'm not part of one, but. I guess I'm more shocked at just how open people are about like their sexuality and their marriages and stuff like that. Now, to me, that was even more of a culture shock <laughs> coming back here. So it was, I'm a firm believer in you, you do you. If it makes you happy and you're not hurting anybody, I don't care. But to like just come here and talking to a couple just randomly be like, so have you ever thought about, you know, being in a thruple and I was like no nope I'm not monogamous what was even the the lead up to that like were you guys talking about hockey and then hey like don't even remember because it it was at a cookout it was at a cookout there's like so I get overstimulated very easily which I think also stems from that but like it was just like the weirdest like the weirdest thing we were talking I don't remember exactly what we were talking about but it was something not related to that at all (laughs) and then it was just so hey and I was like whoa buddy (laughs) maybe it's time you um you cool down on those uh those course lights it was I have to pull up the statistic but I want to say it was while I was in the air force when they had done one of those research surveys about sexual assault lots of the cases it's a high percentage of them alcohol is involved yeah and it seems like that is something that comes up every time they do one of those research studies yet military culture is heavy on drinking it really is and it still is like to this day we went to um a picnic squad unit picnic squadron picnic and leadership did a prayer and then told everybody that they brought a keg so to go ham and i'm like we're in a park like a veterans park like what are we we're we're drinking and driving now like i'm so confused like it's i don't i don't understand how alcohol became so ingrained back to I think <laughs> even before, yeah, like that goes back to England <laughs> and probably, probably caveman days, to be honest. Whenever alcohol was first created accidentally, I just, I don't know. I find it hard to believe that somebody one day was like, huh, I wonder what happens if I could combine this, this, and this and leave it alone for a while. <laughs> really fermented. Let's try this. I'm sure it's almost trillion dollar industry now. (laughs) It's very interesting that there's this huge disconnect of, this was before Uber had gotten really huge, but there was Airmen Against Drug Driving. At the base picnic, there was always an exhibition about what it looks like when you're at the legal limit. And they would have like three Airmen come out and one hadn't had any alcohol, one had one beer, and then one had two beers or something like that. And they showed what the cops look for when someone's driving. Um, One of the things is like shaky eyes. It's something that um, it just happens when you consume alcohol. That's one of the first things they look for. So I'm like, they give you all of these preventative measures and tests. Yet, if you are one of those people in your workplace that doesn't drink, you're the weirdo. Mm -hmm. Like, Make it make sense. I don't know if it's from living in Germany. Like I was a heavy drinker and I didn't realize it was a coping skill that I was using at the time. And then yeah. I'd say pretty recently, I understood that not only was it an unhealthy coping skill, I was actually using alcohol for self-harm because yeah. it was like I'd have a panic attack or a really bad depressive episode or something like that and then drink three bottles of wine, let's say. And it wasn't the intent of of making myself feel better. It was actually, my intent was to feel like shit the next day. So like my outside would match my inside. 
it makes it to other people it makes no logical sense but right but to you this is this is a solution right here you know and my family not big drinkers my parents I think they have a beer maybe once a month and it's with ice cream it's like Guinness or a stout of some kind poured over ice cream it's not that they actually drink the beer so for for me to be a heavy drinker it's like where did this come from and lo and behold it's trauma and then I think a lot of people they're they might have buried that trauma and they don't realize that they're coping with alcohol yeah and then you're you're just you know in this environment where you're encouraged to not only drink but drink to excess mm-hmm. and it's just like okay I mean you gotta be you know one of the pack drink a whole bunch also here's a statistic that alcohol is involved in most sexual assaults so mm-hmm. you can ignore that for today yeah my husband had to sit through some trainings where like it literally told him in the training if your wife has had even an ounce of alcohol don't you know like don't have sex don't touch her don't anything because she can turn it around and it can be used against you and I was like and that's how they say it not you know hey could be misconstrued as and I get it because obviously spousal rape and abuse and it does happen but at the same time, I was like, how are you going to say, like, hey, if your wife has an ounce of alcohol, don't touch her. Or if your partner has an ounce of alcohol, don't touch them because, you know, they can turn it around back on you. What? Like, that's how you're going to say that? Not The wording really mm-hmm. aggravated me. Like, it really aggravated me because to me, that was also saying, without saying it, is, you know, oh, we believe most of these, you know, assaults are bogus and just, you know, misunderstanding. No means no. And if I tell you no. I, I very much remember um, in ROTC, I, I had to think about this for a while because I was like, you know, when I was in ROTC, yeah, they brought up sexual assault, but it wasn't something that a lot of time was spent on. I remember mm-hmm. a few briefings and one in particular, it was kind of framed in a date rape sort of way where it's not service members committing this against each other or um, against civilians. It's, it's just randos out in bars that might put things in your drinks. But then I do also remember that it's maybe it might've been a year or two later. um, There's an NCO. He was doing a briefing about it and he legitimately said, you need to write on a piece of paper that I consent and have that other person sign it that they consent yeah it takes the romance out of it but you don't want it to be used against you and again yep that's the same thing mm-hmm. yes it's framed as people using sexual assault as a weapon mm-hmm. and that mentality is firmly 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 in in military culture where i know the the airmen that i was dating uh, when I was, what, 19, um, he was telling me, like, oh, yeah, girls get buyer's remorse. And they they feel like, oh, well, I guess I, I shouldn't have done that. And I just feel like ruining someone's career, like, on a whim. And I'm like, no, that's not how this works. But, you know, I was young then, and I, I didn't know any different. But yeah. I don't think it was until it happened to me that I, I fully understood when all of these people turned their backs all of a sudden. And it was, and I, I don't think I was ever of the opinion that people were using this as a weapon, but I just, it wasn't something I really thought about because it didn't concern me. I, I on some level, feel horrible about that. Like, this is an important issue, but it, it seems like whether it's sexual assault or, brain aneurysms or cancer or something like that it's not something you really think about until it affects you or someone you care about yeah and and now you said you have a daughter and two kiddos right yeah I have two kids now so how how has that event in your life affected you you raising them and and trying to teach them about the world oh well the little one is 
before, so he doesn't understand quite yet, but I've been very, um, like, I want my daughter to know, as much as it sucks, like, you can't really trust people that you think you can trust, because like I said, I mean, I had friends I had had since I got there that once this happened, jump ship. Mm-hmm. So it was, or had comments, you know, one of my best friends made the comment of like how I probably didn't even have an STD and I was just doing it for attention. And it was like, it was a, yeah, a whole thing, a whole thing. I probably wasn't even sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. I just wanted, like, this was the kind of stuff I dealt with. So like, mm-hmm. I had to tell my daughter, like, very, you know, hey, no means no. If somebody touches you and you don't want to be touched, I was like, you fully have my permission to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. Fully, I will deal with it <laughs> when I have to deal with it kind of thing. But like, I'm not going to do what the school does and, you know, tell my daughter to where like, hey, if somebody's messing with you in any way, shape or form, you know, just either ignore it or bring it to us and they don't do anything is one of the worst schools for or one of the worst states for bullying in schools and stuff and so like I've had to tell her defend yourself we use your dang nails you use elbow like bite people like you do what you got to do to and it's terrifying trying to raise a girl in a world's now where sexual assault is so prevalent like it's terrifying mm-hmm. and I'm tired of hearing you know the whole you know oh it didn't used to be this bad or it wasn't always this bad yeah it was we just didn't have social media to mm-hmm. you know immediately go and share our stories or you know talk to other people and find a support group to help us it just I'm iffy on social media when it comes mm-hmm. to stuff like this because it you'll find the people to help you and you'll find the people that don't when when something like that happens to you the the PTSD is so isolating and then you have or at least before social media that it was just you and if maybe you came forward and spoke to someone your immediate community around you might turn their backs or, you know, say you need attention or whatever, which I, I, one of my biggest like annoyances in the whole world is how women needing attention is somehow weaponized as well. Mm-hmm. We're just minding our business, you know, literally just minding my dang business. Attention like, like that, like negative attention where you're scrutinized and not believed and called a liar. I guess very few people, I think. <laughs> that was again like social media is this double-edged sword where yes you can find support and and hear out other people's stories and finally feel seen and just be like oh my goodness I'm not alone but then you could also get doxxed when people do crappy stuff on on TikTok or whatever like yes I we do think there should be consequences but to the point where people are afraid for their lives no no, like everybody has their day where they're not at their best. And unfortunately, it might have been caught on video. But does this person deserve to suffer? No. No. There's just this balance that needs to be found. And we, even though I, from MySpace days, we still haven't found it. No, sure haven't. It's been a long time. <laughs> it, it does really seem now that since women are able to get educations and have their own jobs and they don't really need spouses. Mm-mm. The response and backlash to that is terrifying. It really, it <laughs> really, it, it really is. Like I just not, I'm, I'm not trying to drag men as a whole. So please don't think that I am. <laughs> it is terrifying to be a woman these days like over anything I've gotten death threats from local males because they didn't like a comment that I posted on like our local news and I'm like what is going like what makes you think that this is okay what in society makes you think that 
this is okay. Or you better, yeah. find, you better hope I don't find out where you live or what, like, what do you, what are you going to do? <laughs> but they say it with their whole chest, with their name and, mm-hmm. you know, profile picture. Yeah. And then they block you, so you can't say anything. Yeah. But I'm able to get that screen cap. So, I mean, like, I have cameras. I have this screen cap. We can play. I can call the cops. It's fine. I don't think that it's all doom and gloom and that things aren't going to change. Like, we, we are moving forward. But it, it does seem, it, it seems like it's that kicking and screaming. When when President Biden had signed that executive order, you know, adding sexual harassment and taking commanders out of the reporting process, did that make you feel any kind of way? I mean, taking commanders out is trying to think of how to word it, because I don't know if it honestly would make the situation better mm-hmm. or worse, because I mean, the sometimes you do have that one in a thousand chance for that commander is going to back you. And if you remove that, like, it's square one for you again. But I mean, more times than not, from what I've seen, that it's it's good old boys club. I'm torn on it, but... You know, there's just no perfect solution. There's not. There's really not. And like we were saying earlier, it was like it's... Every story that I've heard is unique, but like the common thread that they have is just the severity of it, like the the horrific nature of it. Yeah. Since each case is unique, that makes it even more difficult to prosecute or just even understand if you're not in that wheelhouse, if if you're not a social worker or a psychologist or something like that. No, I absolutely agree. If your daughter or son consider joining the military in the future like say they want to follow in dad's footsteps especially I think for my daughter I would be like Mm -hmm. I would not be comfortable with her serving like in today's military because there's so much work to be done still there is so little protection for her versus her male counterparts and it just I'm not okay with it I would not be okay with it my son I probably wouldn't worry about as much but I still wouldn't, I don't think I'd be comfortable with it. I mean, I was considering joining, and this was after my assault, I was still considering joining Mm -hmm. um, just to, you know, like get out of the house and do something different. But I mean, after I came forward to my dad about the assault, he was like, oh, hell no, like I do not want you joining the military because he was like, it is so prevalent. And it's, I mean, I heard... We all heard the stories of, you know, like, hey, don't talk to strangers on the internet. Don't do this. Don't do that. I mean, I was in Colorado Springs and 14 years old and had, like, a 24-year-old. that went to the Air Force Academy hitting on me. It was creepy. It was creepy. So that was my first experience with, like, this is inappropriate and weird. And then moving to Florida. Another 25-year-old dude, 26-year-old dude, and I was 15. Hey, we should. And I was like, what is, like, I don't think people understand how truly prevalent it is in the military. I had had experiences prior to the actual assault where it was, it, it's, it's, it's insane to me. Or like, you know, like, hey, this isn't appropriate. And it's like, don't do it again. Yeah, it's it's not nipped in the bud. Not at all. For people that have that psychology or sociology or good mental health background they know that these first instances are just people testing to see what they can get away with until mm-hmm. something like that happens for some reason leadership is not cognizant of that <laughs> the one time that I did see with my my own eyes harassment get dealt with like this dude was gone was in field training when I was in ROTC there was a guy that was like very gregarious and over the top and he would come up with his own um jodies or something you know the the stuff you sing while you run he was in a different flight than mine but at at some point they they taught us to do combatives and it was like some light jujitsu moves and and MMA crap that you know you never use again never I don't know why it was important for us to learn this but one move in particular I think it was called the rear naked choke and 
you know, it involves being very close to someone and, you know, choking them out basically until they tap out. And I think in one of the showers, that guy said that he wanted to put one of the female cadet training assistants in a rear naked choke. He was gone that day, that day. And I never saw anything like that happen ever again (laughs) while I was a service member. Wow. Mm-hmm. There's there's opportunity to to prevent this from happening. I I literally saw it, and it's just not done. No, it's not. There's more effort. It seems to get the the person that the assault happened to. There's more effort to get them out of the military than the person <laughs> that that caused the harm. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's just something to think about. And and in that case, it doesn't matter the gender. Like whoever is the uh, non-aggressor in that situation, they're out. You didn't follow the rules, you know? You didn't keep it to yourself. You didn't bury it. You're showing us in a bad light, so you're done. Good luck dealing with the VA. (laughs) Moving forward, what do you think it would take for you to feel safe letting one of your children join? I would really have to see the military as a whole stand up and not just wait until there's, you know, something like the Me Too movement or anything like that to come forward and be like, oh, hey, you know, yeah, we have a problem and oh, we're dealing with it. Like, no, I want to see action because you can say you're dealing with it, but clearly you're not if we're able to sit here and have conversations like this. They're quick to kick people out for stuff as stupid as, you know, somebody who works on computers for a living not being able to run a mile and, you know, in a certain amount of time. But you have... Billy Bob, whatever, over here with multiple women came forward and it's, mm, we're going to do our best to bury this. I don't understand the the logic. I don't understand the logic. When they were trying, you know, doing their best to kick people out, why didn't you go for the people that had, you know, the sexual assaults under the belts instead of, you know, the person who, oh man, they missed like two appointments. Why are you not going after the people that you should be? Why are you not going after the problematic people? And more oftentimes than not, it's because they don't want to find replacements for these people to fill the position. Like I was, I've literally been told that excuse before. If it's, well, then we have to fill their position. Okay, so do it. You're going to tell me there's not people out there to do it? Like people PCFs all the time. There's people out there to do it. I know this is probably maybe dumb of me to say, but I feel like a lot of these people stay in because their leadership might have some of the same under their belt and it's Mm -hmm. if you go down I'm going down and it's I don't know if you remember it was like a couple years ago where they took down a couple senior master sergeants master or sergeants for being the pimps of the air force you said the pimps of the air force of the air force they literally called them this in the paper because they basically had this sex ring going on and we actually knew one of the guys who was arrested for it like I grew up with this guy in my house and it's you never know who someone is because I never in my life would have looked at this guy and thought that that was the kind of person he was but these are like I said the kind of people that it's a pattern and they keep them in and it's not safe yeah I've noticed in just the the articles that I've been posting since I don't know maybe July it's from top to bottom. Doesn't matter if it's somebody that's a brigadier general or airman first class. It's, no. it's happening throughout the ranks. And it's oh. happening far too frequently, but we don't yeah. hear about it until there's podcasts like this where people are encouraged mm-hmm. to come forward and talk about it and have a voice. Or there's people that die and it's yeah. whole news that that's one or the other. So if you were able to speak to quote unquote Chad, now with who you've become you're you're now a, a married woman with with a family and you're still healing but you're you're living your life what would you want to say to him that's a tough one because that's honestly something I've never thought about other mm-hmm. than whatever power he thought he took from me he didn't like he didn't break me it's been a hell of a journey but he didn't break me and for the people that perpetuated the, the rumor mill, what would you want to say to them? Nothing kind. <laughs> like, that's something like I still struggle with and I still have trust issues of like, who can I tell? Mm-hmm. Who can I 
not tell. Listen, the next time someone comes to you, listen without a biased mind. Because I, I'm sorry, but your boyfriends are capable of terrible things too. You never really yeah. know someone, unfortunately. People are pretty good at hiding their, their true nature until they can't anymore. I hate saying the word victim. I hate it. <laughs> but like, that's not how I was treated. I was treated more like, oh, great, another one we have to push under the rug. Oh, another one. The the doctor straight told me, oh, you're not the first one to come through here after a corona night with, and I'm like, okay, so why is this something that is still happening on the regular? So it was, and they only shut it down for, I think, like three months. And obviously, assault cases drop, so they open it back up. It's one thing I, I had noticed about like going to the fests for our listeners that haven't been to Germany. Fests are like the county fair. They had a lot of county fairs. <laughs> it was like as soon as I don't know, maybe June happened, the floodgates opened. There were fests yeah. every week in some village somewhere. But I, I did notice that when I would go to them and you know, just I'd be having a good time. I would it wasn't the German people groping me and spanking uh-uh. me or doing like inappropriate stuff like that to get my attention. It was the airmen and uh-huh. whatever few army. And I think I saw a Navy person at Ramstein like once, but it was always a military member. And then um, I also experienced that when I lived in Guam. I love music festivals. I love EDM. I don't know why. It just touches my soul. <laughs> I couldn't explain it to you. They had one in Guam the last summer that I was there. By that point, my, my mental health wasn't doing great. I, I just was having a rough time there. But they had one that was called the Electric Island Festival. And I psyched myself up to go. You know, I'd been hitting the gym and um, I was completely sober that summer. And I, I, my roommate and the girl he was seeing at the time, uh, they went with me. And it was the first time I put on makeup in a while. And you know what you wear to festivals? It's mm-hmm. very little. Mom, also, it's like freaking 90 degrees, 150% humidity. But I'd been to music festivals many times before. Never been touched. Never been whistled at. Never had a reason to feel uncomfortable. There's, they, they call it plur. It's peace, love, unity, and respect. Everybody looks out for everybody at festivals. Yeah. This festival was mostly attended by, I think there was a ship in port. So Navy folks, and we live pretty near the Navy base. And the Air Force base was on the other side of the island, but I'm sure people yeah. came out of there. I think I was at that festival for 45 minutes and I couldn't take it. I was grabbed. Wow. Somebody pulled my shirt. Somebody pulled the, I had a braid that I'd done. Yeah. Somebody tried to like put their hands inside my shorts. And oh. I, I told my roommate, I was like, I have, I can't do this. I have to leave. I, I had no words for it that I've been to music festivals where people are on God knows what. They're on some kind of drug. They're vibing with the music. And none of them in their foggiest dreams would have considered doing something like that. But yeah. a bunch of military dudes was a free Oh, yeah. I was inappropriately touched in a bar while I was there with my husband. A guy walked up behind me and gave me the, you know, the hand at the back of a skirt. Oh, yeah. And I shoved him. I just turned. I didn't care who was around me. I immediately turned around and shoved him. And this is in a German bar, military. And the bartender was like, what was that? Like coming at me. And I was like, uh-uh. Like he grabbed me. I got him away from me. And his friend comes over because they were about to kick him out of the bar. And he's like, my friend's so sorry. Can you just come say sorry? Like, can he come, you know, come over and he can say sorry to you. He grabs my hand and he's like crying. I was like, please do not. Like, you don't get to touch me after what you just did. Do not touch me. And like, I yanked my hand away from him. And, you know, he was like, oh, the second I walked away, those waterworks, boop, dried right up. And I was like, mm-hmm. walk back over. The bartender was like, so? I was like, mm, get him out of here. Like, mm-mm. if it was like sincere, like it, it still doesn't negate the fact that he did it or make it okay. And I understand that some people do really stupid things while they're drunk. I get it. Doesn't make it okay. But if you're going to give me a sincere apology and this is literally something you don't typically do, maybe I could, like, again, still not okay with it, but maybe I could see, like, you know, you're, really really drunk and you need to go home 
-hmm. but the way this guy turned off those waterworks and I was like no you're a psychopath and you need to go (laughs) that is not normal Mm -mm. one thing I learned in therapy was that if someone apologizes to you and then there's no change in their behavior it wasn't an apology it was a manipulation yep I do want to thank you again for your courage and coming forward and, and sharing what happened to you. I even just seeing your face, I know it's still it's it's gutting to see that it still is affecting you like that. But yeah. your story is going to make someone that was, you know, they might have been in a bar in England or who knows, one of the bases in around Vegas and something like that happened to them. Thank you. Thank you for putting yourself out there and letting yourself be heard and seen. Thank you. For your husband as well, you know, supporting you and and being there for you. And and I thank him. You're going to make his ego just. (laughs) (laughs) And say, you know what? My my friend Rachel thinks you're cool. So. (laughs) Well. And and also to your parents, just, you know, give them a hug for me as well the next time you see them. Oh, well. Okay, well, there you have it. That was our interview with Taylor. So yes, her experience was unique, being that she was not the service member and then the attacker was military police. So she was just too scared because he would have been part of the process. If you'd like to speak to Taylor, go to our website, silencevoicesmst.com. Click the Listen Online tab and then scroll down to Salute Our Survivors. You can go ahead and leave her a message some words of kindness, or just let her know that you're thinking of her. It does take a lot of courage to come on this podcast and share these moments with us. And this is your host, Rachel Smith, inviting you to stay safe, be kind, and take care. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to Silence Voices, Stories of MST. Your support means the world to us. To keep these important conversations going, we rely on your generosity. Consider donating to help us continue to shed light on this crucial issue. Visit our website at www.silencevoicesmst.com to contribute, get involved, and join our community. Together, we can make a difference. Stay tuned for more inspiring stories, and remember, your voice matters.